Hi, it's Katie Kiley. I'm the afternoon host for 97.1 The River, Atlanta's classic hits. And I'm here with my buddy Melissa Ruggieri, music critic for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. She also does the music scene blog on AJC.com. And we are two girls talking. This is episode 13. And this week, we're talking about this man. Live from the Fox Theater, Leonard Skinner! That is the voice of Alex Cooley. You probably recognize that intro. If you love Leonard Skinner, you have your very own copy of One More from the Road. Melissa, you even said you know you have it somewhere. I do. Some, <laughs> somewhere amid the boxes of CDs in my apartment, yes. That infamous <laughs> version of Freebird from that. It's just a really great live record, but it was recorded in Atlanta at the Fabulous Fox Theater. We call it the Fabulous Fox, but the Fox Theater. Well, you know, it's funny. I've actually never called it that. I know everybody here does. For the some Fabulous reason, Fox? I've never once referred to it as that. can't help it. I can. Yeah, <laughs> you, sure, you sure can. I don't know if why. If you grew up here, you know See, people a, have been here a long time when that's, they call that's it That's the thing. Fox. I mean, I think that's seriously what it is. I think it's people who grew up here that that's what they refer to it as, but I've just, I just call it the Fox. <laughs> well, it's a lovely theater. If you it heard is. our Greg Allman stories, you heard him talking about it and how it was built by the Masons and how incredible intricate those theaters are. But Alex Cooley had a very interesting background with the Fox Theater in that he helped save the Fox. And we're going to tell you about that in a minute, but you still may be wondering who this gentleman is. Yeah. And what Melissa and I find very fitting is we were huge fans of his. He was born December 15th of 1939, but he passed away on December 1st of 2015. And we figure that this is the perfect week to salute Alex Cooley and share memories of him. He's such an institution. You know, when, when I came to Atlanta... I heard his name pretty quickly after getting here, and that was in 2010. And I never had an opportunity to meet him, actually, until you and I became friends and we started doing our, our weekly radio thing together because your history with him went back so far into the Fox Theater and some of your friends who work there. And it was thanks to you that we actually had lunch together probably about two years before he died. And our friend Deborah maybe. Garner. Yes, yes with Deborah Garner. was so special. Exactly. And I was so in awe. You know, I mean, you know, obviously I've met a million promoters over the years and, you know, have been friendly with many of them. And I understand the business. And it was just so cool to be able to talk to somebody with that legacy and that history, even though at that point he was, oh, he had just bought Eddie's Attic, actually. It's a sweet venue here in Atlanta. And that was the last thing he was doing before he passed away. He had gotten out of the business for many years and I think just wanted to have a hand back in something. And and uh, we're going to hear from his his longtime friend and business partner, Peter Conlon, who I think was sort of like, why is he doing this? <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> but Peter also understood Alex's deep love of music and, and you know, being part of the business and around the business. So yeah, I mean, he even in his older years when his health wasn't that great, he still was always at the venue. I would, you know, I would see him when I would go out there for shows sometimes. And but, but again, I mean, but just that first time sitting at lunch with him and hearing just some of the stories, and then I, you know, had lunch with him a couple of other times, you know, afterward. And he, he's just a, a was such a lovely man, and so not promoter like. Exactly. <laughs> you know? But I think also when when we hear more from Peter too, and you know, their close partnership that they had for many years, you know, Peter always took on more of the business guy role and I think had to be the, the tough guy a lot of times in the room because Alex was so into the artists and the music and the fan experience. So those two, I think, complemented each other so well, very, very well. In, in their years together. And and I think that worked well with their personalities, too, because like like we were saying, I mean, Alex is not that type of, he didn't seem like that type of person anyway. But you know what? I'm sure he had to be tough sometimes when you walk into Absolutely. the room. Absolutely. <laughs> well, and he was such an imposing figure. He's yes. a big, big guy. And this interview that I did with Alex was when they were doing a big Save the Fox memorial campaign of that being 50 
years old. Mm -hmm. So back in 1974 was really when that Save the Fox campaign came about. And Alex was explaining to me, and this was six months before he passed away. So this is June of 2015, where this audio came from. He had this love of the Fox Theater from the time that he was a child and had seen the Fox Theater as a child. He talks about what they planned to do to save the Fox Theater because it was going to be demolished. Mm -hmm. This beautiful, amazing theater that you can't even imagine now that it would ever be demolished. But there was a business downtown that wanted to knock it down and put a parking lot there. And this is 1974. Paradise. Yes, exactly. In 1974, you weren't really even thinking about things like that happening, right? But Alex was one of the big proponents of saving the Fox Theater and got Leonard Skinner behind him on that, too. But here's what he talked about was his first idea for saving the fox. There were a lot of people that worked to save the fox. And uh, I, I had a group of people, and we were going to, we went and, and scoped out where you could buy chains, and we were going to chain ourselves <laughs> to the front thing where the bulldozers got there. And I was quite serious. I was very passionate about it. I, I grew up going to the Fox. My parents used to take me there back when my mother would put on white gloves and my father would put on a coat and tie and a fedora. And we, we'd get in the old uh, Ford and chug along down to the Fox. It was a big damn deal. Where did you live at the time? Um, in Morningside. Okay, so you were close. But you know, close. well, but things weren't, people didn't think of things as close no, like right. they do now, you know? Uh, if you have an old, worn-out car, my father used to have to go out and tinker with it for 15 minutes to get it run. You know? oh. So it wasn't quite like it is now. But would um, you see matinees? Was that what you would go for? Were movies or were they shows? Yeah, at, at that early age, I'm sure it must have been matinees. All I remember, I, I remember dating there and taking girls there. But the early remembrance I have is looking up and seeing the sky and my father said, that's, that's really the sky. And I said, are you sure? Are we sitting here? What if it rains, Dad? You oh, know? that's wonderful. And I, I remember that so well. And I remember just being awed by the magnificence of the fox. To, to watch it decline like I did was really, <laughs> I won't say heartbreaking. That's melodramatic. But it was disturbing, mm-hmm. yeah. to say the least. Yeah. So you were going to chain, you and some other friends were going to chain yourselves yeah, we had it all planned out about what we were going to do to fasten the chains around our wrists and everything. No, we were quite serious. Actually, I was looking forward to it to some degree. <laughs> it seemed like a fun thing to do. And back in those days, I was pretty wild and woolly. That's Melissa's and my friend Alex Cooley. Just a few months before his passing, he died in December of 2015, and that was the summer before. Melissa, so interesting to hear him talk as a young boy, just painting that picture of going with the Fox Theater Mentum and going to the Fox. And it's still there. I mean, you know, thank God it's still there. And it still does look the same with the ceiling and, <laughs> and just the ornateness yes, of it. And, it's so beautiful. And, yeah. and there are Fox Theaters all across the country. There so are. I'm, I'm sure that are similar. So there maybe are. They are, yes. You're somewhere that has it. Mm-hmm. But let's talk a little bit about how we move on with the story of Alex. Well, you know, we talked about Peter Connell a little bit. And um, you and I have known, you know, since we started doing this podcast that we wanted to dedicate one to Alex around the time of, of his birthday. And 
we wanted to have Peter come in and talk to us just about their history together because they were such good friends. And Peter had said, you know, he always looked at it more as a marriage than a business partnership, really. I mean, because they spent so many years together, working so closely together. Although Peter's young enough almost to be his son. He, he, I mean, Alex's yeah, son. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, there, there's a, you know, a reasonable age difference between them. But Peter learned so much from him that, you know, he still takes with him. Now, Peter's currently the president of Live Nation Atlanta. So, you know, he stayed in the business and kind of rolled through it as the promotion company that he and Alex had together for many years and got bought by Clear Channel and then bought by... You, you know, know these which, names, you know, don't which you? Which turned yes, SFX and so, you know, Live yeah. Nation, you know, and, and so, you know, Peter just stayed with Live Nation over the years. But when Peter came in um, to chat with us, you know, he was here for so long because we wanted to talk to him about so many things. But when he talked about Alex, you could still tell, and whenever I interview him about anything, really, he always makes sure to credit Alex or to put his name in there somehow, just that, you know, oh, well, Alex taught me this, or Alex told me this, or, you know, Chastain Amphitheater, one of the amphitheaters here, they named a road behind there for Alex about a year or so ago. And, you know, Peter was just so happy to call me to say, like, hey, do you want to come out and do a story about this? Because, I mean, he, he truly loves him, and he wants to keep his legacy and his memory intact. So yes. I think it was just really cool that he was willing to come sit with us and, and talk to us so much about Alex's history here. And here's some of what Peter had to say. And I worked with a lot of promoters around the country. Louis Messina, Bill Graham, Alex Cooley. And that's how I really formally met Alex, because we were doing some Willie shows together down here. And we just hit it off. I enjoyed spending time with him. He was a very affable person. And, and at what point in Alex's career was this? So how, how long had he been doing what he Alex he started in 1969 or 8. Very famous story about who he, he was going down to go snorkeling in Key West. And uh, he stopped in Miami, and they were having a pop festival. And he thought, wow, this is cool. I could do this. <laughs> so he went back to Georgia and got a, a small group of investors together. I think they raised $100,000, and they put on the first pop festival. And this is 69, and, correct? And, 69. and that was in kind of the outskirts of Georgia. That <laughs> race was, well, track. That was, I yeah. believe it was the race track. It was race track the first time. It was Janis Joplin, Led Zeppelin. Right, just for people who don't know. Right, yeah. and, yeah. and uh, did very well. And he made, <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Janet Joplin lets I know. Yeah, so then he decided to do a second one, which was the famous Byron one, mm. yep. which today still holds the record for the largest public gathering in the state of Georgia of over 300,000 people. In one uh, day? In, yeah, yeah. Wow. And that was Jimi Hendrix. That was Hendrix, um, Allman Brothers, yeah. which was one of their first big gigs. And I've seen some of the footage of it. and. You see the Allman Brothers, they got a tambourine player. And, <laughs> I mean, I mean stuff they don't have now, a harmonica player. I mean, you could see they were, mm -hmm. and there's some great shots of Greg walking around and, and, and Dwayne. And uh, technology wasn't great in those days. I mean, they, they built the fence out of wood. The stage was built out of four-by-fours and plywood. And the spot towers were telephone poles. Imagine getting away with that today. Oh, <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> oh yeah, because there was you couldn't. There was no staging companies. Right. I mean, there was. Um, I mean, the reason the Beatles stopped touring was they had passed technologically in the studio what they could do out on the road. Right. They couldn't recreate the songs. And they couldn't, they couldn't hear, hear themselves, themselves either. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there was no. I mean, they played with amps. There was mm -hmm. no sound systems. Mm -hmm. And is this that's where, when he started? Was and, one of those where Grand Funk just. Blew everybody away. Was it at the Atlanta Pop Fest? I it feel like there been, was something where Grand Funk, nobody County. knew who they were, and all of a sudden it was like. Ew. It might have been there or Fulton County. I know he he was good friends with Mark Farner. I mean, he felt that it's, a lot of these acts in those days it was much more personal than it is nowadays. I mean, the acts knew who you were. There's a personal relationship. It was your money. I mean, they respected you, and there were a lot of friendships. I mean, he was very good friends with you know Willie, with Steven Tyler, and Billy Joel. There were a lot of people that he you know had a very close personal relationship with. What he was able to do at that point was show the agents in New York 
which was basically the big booking hub in those days, now it's more L.A., that there is a market for rock music here. They weren't coming here because they thought we were a bunch of dumb rednecks that only listened to country music, and he had a hard fight trying to book those things. Was that, though, true to an extent up until that point? I mean, or was that just a stereotype? I mean, was that really all that was here before Alex really started pushing rock? Was it mostly country music? And Yeah, there was, well, there wasn't a lot of touring shows coming yeah. through town. Even when I started work with Alex when we were independents, our main role was when we saw a tour was going out, we lobbied and fought to make sure we were on the tour. You know, whenever we heard like the Stones were going out, we were on the phone to make sure there was an Atlanta date. So we, we were always pushing for the city to get those shows because it's important. I mean, it's, the, the more big names you did, the more you would get because people would see that it was successful. So then he started doing shows, you know, at the Municipal Auditorium. I remember that place. Yeah. <laughs> Where was that? I don't. That crazy. place I don't know. It's now. It's still there. It's part of Georgia State. It's. it's oh, okay. It's right there okay. at the corner of Auburn place. and Cortland. Okay. That I saw was, Dr. Hook there yeah. with Rare Earth. I think. I saw Leanne Russell and the Shelter people there. I saw Johnny Winter there. Small place. Uh, Lee oh, Michaels. Yeah. yeah, and he. But um, it's like an auditorium. It's like a school auditorium. Yeah. that's yeah. what it felt. Yeah. And he did shows there, and then he and he would do shows at the Fox. We didn't have many venues, and then he started the ballroom, you know, right. the electric ballroom, and that became really a, a, a beginning point for a lot of artists, you know. I mean, Springsteen played it very famously. This, okay, let's describe the electric ballroom, Alex Cooley's electric ballroom. And were you with him at that point, Peter? No, no, no okay. I was in high school. The, okay. the ballroom was the actual ballroom of the Georgian Terrace. Mm-hmm. It is now the parking garage. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's where it physically was, and it was just a, a hotel ballroom. And they had the stage, and he put some bars in it, and he would book acts at that point who were just emerging acts, you know. The police? The police. I mean, yeah. I did REM there when I came back and was working with them, but it was a lot of bands that went on to be very big bands. That was his entry level for people in this market. And then, of course, the Omni opened in the 70s, so we had an arena. Uh, so you didn't have to use municipal anymore. So he had an arena, <laughs> and he was doing shows. So when I came back, it was just after he went through his bankruptcy. He had opened the Capri and Buckhead, put a lot of money in it, and closed the electric ballroom, and disco hit, and people stopped buying tickets. The people who had loaned him the money called in the loan, and it, basically he was forced into bankruptcy, which which is wrong, I think. But he. When I came back from Washington, he was working out of the basement of his townhome over off of Druid Hills, and he was counting on relationships. It was just him on a phone. And this must have been then late, late like 77? 78, 1980. Okay. And he and I would have lunch all the time and talk, and I was doing some political consulting and doing some events, and I, I was trying to get in the business, but I was trying to get out of politics. And he had still some strong relationships, especially Willie. And he had the rights to Willie on the East Coast, pretty much east of the Mississippi up to D.C. And Willie, at that point, had grown to be an arena act. You know, and Alex also had the Southeast Music Hall. The great <laughs> Southeast Music Hall. And he, uh, yeah, Willie played there. I saw Billy Joel Billy there. Billy Joel there. Steve Martin played it all the time. This was a place y'all where you, you had to sit on the floor. They had like Shag cushion. carpet. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. The and the back carpet in a venue on the floor. And what were you people thinking? You bought your beer and buckets, which and I still have a couple of beer, beer buckets. Buckets of beer, which are the big thing, and it was fun. But and you sat on the floor. That's so you probably messy. held about seven hundred people. I think yeah, it was. It was Imagine really what was cool. In that carpet, you didn't care. That was <laughs> yeah. that age. That's you don't cool care. Room. Yeah. And you know, 
I don't know what happened. And the biggest show he talks about that got the most attention was the Sex Pistols because mm-hmm. they kicked off their U.S. tour there. Yes. And he just thought they were the worst band. <laughs> you know, he, he always talk, told me, he said, I don't know why anybody made a big fuss. They couldn't even play. Right. So, but that got a lot of national attention oh, for yeah. us. Mm-hmm. But that stuff puts your city on the map. You know? How did he get them? Just booking, calling, yeah. and the agents. There was a couple agencies in New York at the same time had formed. A lot of these agencies didn't know what to do with rock bands mm-hmm. because they were busy booking. Henny Youngman and all these other, you know, William Morris, and he had these right. old agents, and well, what am I going to do with someone like this Springsteen guy, you know? And so mm-hmm. this one guy, Frank Barcelona, probably the biggest, stepped out and formed his own agency, Premier, which was a rock agency. And at one point, he had everybody. I mean, Frank had Springsteen, um, Van Halen, The Who, I mean, every band you can imagine. You weren't a promoter unless Frank anointed you. And the deal with Frank was you had to have a club and you had to have a way to build the acts. And then he gave you the bigger acts and you lost money on the smaller, but you would make it on the bigger. Okay. And he and Alex were, were close friends. So he was buying acts from Frank and he still had those relationships. So I helped him get the financing together on a Willie tour, the holiday tour. I think it was 1984. I found that poster in the warehouse the other day and I, and I have it in my office. I hung it on the wall because that was the first time we worked together. We did the East Coast. We sold out every date, and that gave him some capital, and it also showed that we could work together. Wow. Because he put a lot on me. I did a lot of the work, the marketing. I did the settlements. We started talking and talking about doing other things, and then some other shows came up, and you know he needed some financing, and we just started meeting and talking, and then he got an office together, had a few people working for him. Finally, I, I took him out to Chastain Park and showed him the amphitheater, it was, you know, and said, you know, this would be a good place for contemporary shows because, you know, in other markets when I did Benefits for Carter, I played amphitheaters and people really like them and we didn't have one. So I uh, talked to the city and I talked to Andy Young who liked the idea. And When he's saying Andy Young, he's talking about Andrew Young. Yes, that yeah, Andrew Young. Yeah. The mayor. Yeah. yeah, and I talked to, to, to Andy and, and uh, he liked the idea and so we started doing shows. That was successful. And, and Chastain uh, Park holds about 4,500? 6, oh, so it is that many. Okay, yeah. with a lawn. Yeah. But yeah. it's a beautiful Greek-style amphitheater. Yeah, we just and renovated it. it, yeah. Beautiful, kind of in this little bowl area of a neighborhood yeah, in Atlanta. It's, it's, and it's really nice. And the neighbors now, place. it was kind of a... Contentious? Contentious <laughs> move when we first went in there with some of the neighbors who'd been there. But now the neighbors really embrace the place because... Uh, it really put the park on the map. It's which historical is, now, really. Well, it used to be $175,000 homes, and now there's homes for $5 million mm-hmm. in the neighborhood. Also, the money to go into the park for all the renovations, because the park was in terrible shape in those days. The deal I put together with the city, money from all the ticket sales went in to fund those renovations. So they realize that the amphitheater is a functioning part of the park. They also like going to the shows. A lot of I watch mm-hmm. a lot of people when they leave now. They walk out and walk to their houses. Oh, that's so, interesting. Walking up the Might street. Might as well. Yeah, yep. <laughs> yeah. I watch them walking up the street. You <laughs> yeah. know, so it's, it's part of Atlanta's fabric. So it's 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 become one like, of the first concerts there was Cream. Is that right? Like nineteen sixty. That was oh. before. Uh, that was back in sixty eight. I think. I don't, I'm not sure. I think who it was sixty eight. I've seen a picture yeah. for them. I yeah. guess. Yeah. I, I have yeah. pictures of it, but they were. Yeah, it was just Eric and Ginger and Jack Bruce on stage with amplifiers. (laughs) Can you um, imagine this neighborhood? No backdrop, no (laughs) lights, nothing. I mean, 
to have been very, there. Wow. I yeah. Know. And so, um, yeah, and I know, I remember Three Dog Night did three nights there back in 67, 69, I think they did three nights. But it was kind of intermittent use, and then Symphony was doing a series there for their symphony in the mm-hmm. summer. And so we started doing the contemporary stuff, and that, that was successful. And then, then we started actually talking about getting an office together, and we finally moved in together and got an office, and um, we were doing everything together then. But a couple of years after that, the lawyer said to us, you know, you guys need to have a contract because we just had it on a handshake. We finally set stuff on paper. We never uh, argued over money. We never had to fight over business. So it, it was a good relationship. I knew him as just this wonderful, gentle man who did enjoy reminiscing. When he was talking about the Fox Theater with me, there was a 50th anniversary of the Fox. And he remembers being in the car and his mother wearing gloves and they were going to the Fox for some show when he was a little boy. So that the Fox Theater in Atlanta meant a lot to him. And he was instrumental in saving that theater up. He loved Atlanta. He grew up here. He went to Grady High School. I mean, he loved Atlanta, and he liked doing things here. And we both felt that way, both from Atlanta. We were very proud of Atlanta, and um, we always were very careful what we did here. We wanted to make sure everything was successful and it was the right thing for the city. And money wasn't always the most important thing to Alex. I mean, he wanted to save the Fox Theater just because he wanted to save it, and he had a lot to do with that, these midnight shows and Oh, my gosh, he told me some of those stories. It was crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah. And the fox was like a little hellhole. It had just been oh, put into disrepair. It was, it was just awful. It was a mess back then. Seats were broken. It was a, it was not in a good shape. See, he did a lot for the city, but, I mean, he really put it on the map entertainment-wise within the rock community and, and music community. That's Peter Conlon, the president of Live Nation Atlanta. And, Melissa, you know, I know you haven't watched this yet, but I saved it at the time. September of 2015, Jimi Hendrix Electric Church. It might have been on Showtime or something. Yeah. It is amazing. This is a documentary mm-hmm. on Jimi Hendrix playing the Atlanta Pop Fest, well, which Peter Conlon was talking about at the very beginning, is really what put Alex on the map were the Atlanta Pop Festivals. There were two of them, the second one Hendrix played in 1970. So this Hendrix Electric Church is the whole performance. That's pretty incredible. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. So you're seeing what he's saying in between and you're just watching it like you'd be somebody in the audience. And I think what is so shocking about it is this video and audio was put away in somebody's barn for like however many years. Wow. Just kind of rediscovered yeah. it. They always knew they had it but didn't really know what a gem they had. So the sound quality is amazing for that many years ago. Where where did the audio come from that it was, it was so it, good? They explain in the, yeah. in the program. It's it been like a little a while since. Sound it, engineer or somebody yes, that had. But yeah. it, it was a guy that actually went to Alex and they talk about it. They went mm-hmm. to Alex Cooley and said, we want to film this. And he said, at first he said, it's going to be too much. And they said, no, we'll stay out of your way. Right. And do it. And he said, okay. But they actually interview Alex for the documentary. Oh, so nice. there are several pieces with him in it. And it's something that you want to watch yeah. with Alex Cooley. Again, that's Jimi Hendrix Electric Church, a documentary from 2015. And, you know, when Hendrix's performance there was just a few months before he died. Right. Isn't that? So that's just some history, too, that it was just all sort of entwined. And what a groundbreaking thing that Hendrix even played that festival. So that has to make you realize what what a magnificent man Alex Cooley mm-hmm. was to be doing that back in 1969 and in 1970. Yep. Just a guy with a dream and then, boom, bringing the dream to all of us that love music so much. 
You think this is a good place to stop and I maybe so. do an episode 14 on Alex to continue over the yeah, holidays here? We still, we still have lots of things to say about Alex, and yeah, Peter Conlon still had lots of things to say about Alex, so let's make Alex a two-parter. That sounds great. <laughs> and listen, if you have ideas for us, Melissa and I are always open. We'd love to hear from you. Our Facebook page, which is Two Girls Talking, that is the number two. You can email us at twogirlstalking11, the number 11, <laughs> at gmail.com. And of course, you can find us on iTunes, where you can find all of the episodes of Two Girls Talking that we've done so yeah. Yeah, over the holiday, catch Catch up, up. and then let us know what you'd like to hear from us. And share with your friends and family. (laughs) Absolutely. And yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Merry Christmas, by the way. Merry Christmas.